I'd like to welcome and introduce Chris Kellermeyer this morning. Chris is the associational mission strategist for our Crossroads Baptist Association. Did I say all that right? He is a Hoosier native, grew up in Fortville, went to Purdue University, and served in the U.S. Air Force, where he was stationed in Germany. He's pastored both in Florida and in Indiana, has planted churches both in both states. He has served in ministry both full-time and bivocationally. Here in Indiana, he has served with the East Central Baptist Association as moderator and has served on the executive board of SCBI as the chairman of the camp committee. Most recently, he worked for, the NAM, for NAM as the Sind City Missionary for Indianapolis. In this role, he headed up the church planning efforts in the metro of Indy and served as a coach and mentor for young leaders. He's married to his beautiful wife, Paula, for 34 years, has four great kids and seven amazing grandkids. Amen. So, Chris, we welcome you this morning. Amen. Man, thank you, Paul. Man, it's, what, a, what a privilege. I send you greetings from uh, 95 other churches from across the Indianapolis metro. Uh, it, is, it is my privilege and honor to serve. Uh, thank you. Thank Calvary Greenwood for all you do uh, and, and in, in giving and in serving uh, the Indianapolis area and Greenwood specifically. Uh, man, I, 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 every chance I get, I try to brag about you and your pastor. Uh, Dave is, is truly a blessing. Uh, man, I hope you are regularly praying for him and, and thinking about him. Uh, you know, when, when he invited me, he said, listen, I, I had a last-minute uh, cancellation. Could you fill in? And, of course, I'm, uh, I'm always eager to, to help and to, to serve in any way I can. I said, well, absolutely. And I said, so how are you all doing, doing church? And, you know, because it's really interesting uh, during the pandemic time is there's a lot of different variations on how uh, everybody's doing uh, worship services. So I said, well, Dave, how, how are you guys doing yours? He said, well, we're doing it, uh, you know, outside uh, in our field there and uh, people in their cars. And, uh, and he said, now, Chris, you know, I'm, I'm generally, you know, in a, in a polo and some shorts. Now, let me just tell you, I, I've seen Dave's legs. I don't want to ever see that. So I'm just saying that that may not be a great thing. But uh, I told him I wasn't going to wear shorts because uh, mine are even uglier. But uh, at any rate, uh, so, so the outside, tr- now do y'all do the, the honking amens, by the way? Hey, there we go. All right. Somebody's catching on. You can even, you know, do, get a little charismatic and put your hand out and wave a little bit. That's always good. Hey, there we go. All right. Excellent. <laughs> I see that hand. I feel like Billy Graham. Um, I figure this is probably one of the only times I'll be, you know, in, in anywhere close to one of those big, you know, stadium out, outside events and, and being able to, to preach at those. Uh, so, and, and by the way, I have come prepared. I've got my water down here. Uh, got my water bottle. Always good. Um, I've got, uh, I've got my, my handkerchief in case I start to sweat. Uh, and then... And then if it gets real bad, I've got my, uh, this goes way back. This will tell me how old you are. I even have a sweatband for my head. Somebody say amen right there. 
That's a good one, yeah. So that tells me how old you are, if you know what those are. If you're, if you're 30 and younger, it's, you put it around, it's an elastic thing. Well, don't worry about it. Look it up when you get home. All right. We're going to go ahead and jump in, uh, and, and I'm going to be reading today from Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, um, and uh, we're going to start in verse 11, uh, and we may back up just, uh, just real quick. So uh, turn with me there. Luke uh, 15, or, or on your uh, device, or however you're, you're doing that today, uh, Luke 11, or I'm sorry, Luke 15 and verse 11. I'll be reading actually out of the New King James today, uh, and here's what it says, starting off. It says, then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living, or riotous living, depending on what your version says. But when he had spent all, there arose a great famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that today that as we've sung already, we've lifted up your name in worship We've glorified you through the reading of Scripture. Father, that our aim, our desire is to see you magnified, to see your grace lifted high. And so, Father, I pray that we would see it in your Scripture, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. And, Father, that we would walk away or drive away from here different than when we came. And, Father, we love you, and we thank you for all that you're going to do, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I would contend uh, to you that out of the some 100 to 300 parables that are in the Scripture, that this parable, this one parable, is the most important parable in the Bible. Now, of all those parables, 30 of those parables were from Jesus himself. And yet, 
I would, I would tell you and defend the fact that this parable, one that we are, if we've been in church for any length of time, we know this. We know this parable. And in fact, it's, it's, it's something that, in fact, I think that we could focus in like a laser that this one parable describes the theme of the entire Scripture. Because what is the theme? From beginning to end, the theme of Scripture is that of redemption. From the very beginning, from the fall until the very book of Revelation, which we see the culmination of redemption, when we are all gathered together around the throne, is full redemption. That this one parable describes redemption in a very clear, concise, and, and easy-to-understand way. And in fact, Jesus even, I mean, it, you know, why did Jesus come? I mean, we don't, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to wonder. We know from Jesus' own words why he came. He told us on more than one occasion that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. So redemption. So first of all, we're going we're gonna to check. You know, now, one of, the, one of the things that we have to understand is that we actually see three different, some people would say that this is three different parables. I would, I would put before you that it's actually one parable, one big parable, that has three different chapters, if you will, or three different elements. But to understand where this comes from, we've got to back up a little bit, and at the beginning of the chapter, we see something very interesting. We have to understand who Jesus is speaking to. So let's look. Here's what it says in verse 1 of Luke 15. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained. (laughs) Pharisees and scribes, they often have a tendency to complain. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so what we see in this teaching is that Jesus is responding to the Pharisees and the scribes. So the audience is publicans, sinners, scribes, and Pharisees. Now today, we're just going to look at part of this particular parable. And in actuality, there are two sons that are described. We're only going to talk about the first son, the younger son. And if you ever have me back again, I'll do a part two, because you can dedicate a whole other sermon to the older son. Now, verse 12, one of the first things that we see out of verse 12 is that, and, and by the way, we're also going to have uh, culture breaks in here. Uh, because we have to understand that whenever we come to the Scripture, that we are reading it from our own mindset, culture, history, which is Western. But the fact is, is that there's so much that we don't understand and so much that we have to understand about culture, and especially this specific culture, to understand in entirety what this parable is revealing to us. So, He says in verse 12, so we see the first one says a certain man had two sons, and then it says in verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them 
his livelihood. Now, we have to understand that what was happening is this youngest son was coming to his father. He was coming to his father demanding his inheritance. Demanding his inheritance. Now, I have, I have four kids. I have two girls, two boys, girl boy, girl boy. And I can tell you that as they were coming up, as they were young and now, you know, they're older and out of the house, that at any one point, if my children ever came to me to demand their inheritance, there would be some problems. Can I get a, can I get a honk right there? There you go. <laughs> there would be a serious problem. Well, there's a serious problem that's taking place. He's not just, you know, and again, when we read it, it, it sounds like a very innocent ask, but no, what he's doing, he's actually demanding his inheritance. For a, a son to do this to his father was huge. It was making a statement. See, because the only time that a son would receive inheritance is at the death of his father. So in essence, what he's saying to his father, what this young son is saying to his father is, Father, you know what? I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead, and I want what's coming to me, and I want it now. This, and in particular in this culture, this is a, this is this culture, and in fact, it persists today. In the Middle East, Asia Minor, in that area, that is, that is under what's called a shame and honor culture. Shame and honor. This means that when this son was coming to this father, he was openly shaming him. He was breaking relationship with his father, and he knew it. He knew it because he knew that this is, this is the prevailing understanding of how the culture worked. He knew, he knew what he was doing. Shameful, unheard of request. And here's what's interesting, is that the father does it. The father gives him his inheritance. But we have to understand also, here's a culture break, is that the father didn't have his inheritance, you know, underneath the mattress. He didn't have his inheritance somewhere in a bank. He wasn't going to go just cash out and then give him, give him money. No. What was referred to here is when the father says that he divided his livelihood to them, he was referring to the land. You see, because the land was the inheritance of a Jewish man. Now, we have to stop for a minute and understand that for a Jew, this was land that was promised to him from God. This was the dearest, most prized possession that a Jew could have, was the land, the plot of ground that was promised to him and generations before him, 
land that was given to him. It was their direct link to God. That's why we see in the headlines even today that that plot of ground that we see in the Middle East called Israel and Jerusalem is so fought after and so prized. And in particular for the Jewish nation that they will fight to the death because this is their link to God. When you see the word, it says that he divided his livelihood or his living to them. Here's what's interesting, is that that word actually is the word bios, where we get the word biology, bios, and it means the very essence of life. That's what he was dividing and, of course, we know from, from, we see it from Scripture, is that what happens is, in the division, is that the older son was actually the one who would receive a double portion. So, for instance, in this particular case, there were two sons, and so the inheritance would be divided up three ways, and the oldest son would get two parts, youngest son would get a part. So, sold the land. Also, we have to understand that what culturally is happening here is that when the father sold the land, I mean, when the, not, not, not sell the land, but when he gave the land to the son, that the son turns around in verse 13, and it says, after a while, then he gathered all that he had and took the journey. So it took him a little bit to sell the land because he was trying to turn it in for cash. Now, why did it take him a while? I mean, if this land was so prized, is because of the rule that was given to the Jews concerning the land. Because here's the rule. The rule was that if somebody did sell their land, that on the year of Jubilee, that it would be returned to the original owner. And so, imagine that this son is trying to sell this land for cash, and Everybody knows, well, I'm only going to own it for a little while, and then I'm going to have to give it back. So what happens? We know what happens is, is that he has, he has sold his birthright for cheap. He sold it at the very minimal price that he could get so that he could have what he believed was his inheritance. So he sells the land cheap. He rejects everything. He rejects his family. He rejects his father. He rejects uh, the community. And then it says that he travels to a far country. (laughs) Often when people are in sin, they try to get away as far as they possibly can from where they come from. So he goes as far as possible And then it says in verse 13 that he loses it all with reckless living. Loses it all. Now imagine, and in fact what we find out later on is that once he's spent every bit, you know, he's partied as as hard as he possibly can. We know that part of it had to do probably with prostitutes because we hear that later on from the older son. He has shamed his family, his community, and now he's broke. He's broke. And he's as far away as he could possibly get from his family. And then a famine hits. 
Wow. A famine hits. Now, <laughs> he had a plan B. He thought to himself, well, here's what I'll do. I'll see if I can find somebody who will pay me to work for them. Now, I, you know, here's the crazy part. Think about what he's saying. He's like, okay, I'm broke. I don't have anything. I don't know anybody. I'm not related to anyone who would know somebody that I could work for during a famine in the land. That's like trying to find a job in a pandemic. That's his plan. That's his plan. I'm going to get a job. A foreigner. And he was a Jew, no less. We have to understand that even during this particular time, Jews were persecuted. <coughs> they, were, they were not received well from the neighboring countries. And he finally finds a man who has some means, and he says, okay, all right, how about you go and feed my pigs? Now, <clears throat> here's what we have to understand. When we think of pigs, especially in our Western context, we're thinking about that he's in a pigsty. Well, that's not what they did. And in fact, even today, that's not what they do there. That what happened is, is that he was out trying to find the free-roaming, ranging pigs who were eating whatever they could find during this famine so he would try to take care of them and feed them, and, and, and they were eating pods. They, and there's a specific, you can even look it up, the, what possibly they were eating. There was, you know, chewy, nasty, brittle pods that they were eating. This son had gotten so far at the bottom that he was thinking to himself, you know what, I, I'm so hungry Nobody's given me anything. I, I could probably eat what they're eating. He has truly hit rock bottom. There's been no one to show him mercy nor pity. Now, let's take a, let's take a break here for a second. Remember who Jesus is speaking to. And, and I, you know, I often think of this almost like a movie. So let's flash over to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are standing there because, you know, Jesus is giving this teaching because of what they'd said. And they are emotionally caught up in this story. Again, because of shame, honor, culture, is that as they're hearing these things, they're, they're, they're almost smiling as they hear about the story of this young son. You see, because now he's hit the very bottom, the very bottom rung for a Jew to be feeding pigs. He has nothing. That's exactly what he deserved, the Pharisees thought to themselves and murmured to themselves. He must be punished. This is exactly what should be happening to him. And then at verse, verse 17 is one of the most beautiful words in scriptures. It says, but, but he came to himself. He came to himself. All of a sudden, the prodigal, perhaps even as he's trying to take a bite of one of these pods, looks around realizes 
where he's at, realizes what he's doing. He realizes, and maybe for the first time, understands what he has done. He was humbled. He was so far down that the only way he had to look was up. And it came to him to say, you know what, here I'm, I'm eating what these pigs are eating, and, and my father has provision far and above what I would ever need. He realizes that his father has exactly what he needs. And the beauty part about this is, is that what he does at this moment is what all of us have to do at some point in our lives. He turns and heads the opposite direction to his father. He heads back home. And, and he knew what he needed to say, right? And in fact, what we, what we see him doing is now he has a new plan. See, he thought his plan would work. He thought his plan was going to be the solution to him being broke and hungry. But all of a sudden, he realizes, man, I need to go to my father. I need to beg forgiveness. I need to tell him I'm not worthy to be his son. That I, he understands, you see in his very words, that he could not earn the mercy of his father. That the only thing he could do was to cast himself at the feet of his father, begging for mercy, begging for forgiveness. This was his heart cry, crying out to his father, crying out to say, you're the only one that can save me. Now, I love in verse 20. Here's what it says. He rose, came to his father. Now understand, this was a long journey. He'd, he'd taken, taken some time to get away. He's in nothing but tatters. He has no shoes. He's making his way. And I love it when it says in verse 20, but when he was still a great way off. Still a great way off. His father saw him. Now what do we know? He sees him a great way off. Now, what we know is that the father had been at the edge of the village trying to see his son returning. He had been looking for his return. He'd been waiting expectantly for his return. He wasn't going to force his son to come back. He knew that there, if there was any hope of a restoration to fellowship and relationship, that his, father, that his son had to return on his own. He sees him a long way off. He was expectantly waiting. He saw him, and the first thing that we see, what was his reaction? He had compassion on him. What an amazing father figure we have here. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, if, if I'd have been a father, if I'd have been this father, something in me might have said, well, yeah, 
You come and make your way. You got what you deserved. But we see that this father was different. He had compassion on him. And then it says something amazing. And again, it's cultural. It says that he ran to him. Wait a minute. Hold on. The Bible says that the father ran? The father ran. (laughs) You see, we have to understand that in that culture at that time in particular, and even still today, fathers do not run. Fathers don't run. That was something that children did. That was something that women did. That means that he would have to hike up his his skirt, if you will, and run and expose his, his legs. This did not happen. And again, now flash over to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, again, they're thinking, now, here's what should happen. This this father has every right because of our culture as that this son is making his way that what should happen is that this father should have nothing to do with him. That this father has rightfully, he's in the place to see this son stoned to death. And yet, what do we see the father doing? The father runs He puts his arms around him, and he kisses him. This son, who should be rightfully shunned from the the culture, the community, the family, should be stoned that the father does something completely different. He runs for joy, but he also runs because I believe this is the fact. The father knew the culture. The father knew what would happen. The father knew that he must get to that son before anyone else because he had to protect him. He had to protect him from the shame of all the others. In fact, the son probably was even expecting blows to rain down on him. He was expecting people to come out. And in fact, they have, they have this, there's, a, there's actually a ceremony or an act, and it's called kazaza, where what happens is, is that when somebody like this returns back to that community, is that people will take clay pots. They will take clay pots over to this, this, this son, and they would throw them at his feet, breaking them, shattering them into a million pieces, symbolizing the fact that our relationship is broken What you have done is shattered our relationship. The father knew this. The son knew this. The son comes begging. And the father instead. Imagine what's happening here. The father runs for joy, but the father runs for protection because it's the father that bore the shame for the son. Father bore the shame. He embraced him. He kissed him. And I love it. In verse 21, the son tries to speak. He tries to speak his prayer. But what happens is, is that the father so envelops him and so wraps him up that he does not get to finish his prayer, his heart cry. The words don't even matter. The words are coming from a heart that's repentant, a heart that's broken, over what he's done, and the father envelops him. And instead what happens, now, and I can't imagine at this point that the Pharisees are about to have 
a, a, a stroke. Because now what happens is that the father says, <laughs> I love this. He says, um, the father says to the servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf. So instead of shunning him, shaming him, stoning him, the father gives gifts. This is crazy. Now, gifts mean things, right? Right? I mean, that's true in our culture as well. If somebody gives you something, it, it, it's telling about your relationship to them. Right? I mean, ladies, help me out. Give me a, give me a honk on an amen, right? Right? Because you know that when your husband gives you a ring, there's some significance attached to that, right? Well, it's the same thing here. We have to understand that there is significance in each one of these gifts. First, he says, I want you to go get the robe. I want you to go get the best robe. Now, let me ask you a question. Who in that household has the best robe? The father. <laughs> the father has the best robe. So, man, and every time I get to this point, I, get, I begin to get choked up. Why? Because here's what is being said. Here's what's being explained. Here's what's being illustrated in this parable. Is that the father is saying to the son, I'm going to clothe you with my robe. I'm going to clothe you and protect you, signifying once again covering of his sin, covering of his shame, and restoration to full sonship. Nobody else got to wear the father's robe. And then it says, get a ring. Once again, this is not just, you know, a nice thing. He's saying, not only are you back in full sonship, but you now have authority as well as my son. Now, the shoes, I believe that the shoes were probably just filling a need. His son didn't have any shoes on. So his son needed shoes, so he's going to provide. He's going to bring provision for what the son needed. And then the very last part is the fattened calf. Now, they had been fattening this calf, not for the son, but for another celebration. But the, the father says, listen, go get that, that, that special calf that we've been feeding for a special occasion, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill that fatted calf because now is a time of celebration. Now, I want to put to you that this is the theme throughout all three chapters of this parable. You see something that was lost. You see it in the sheep, the lost sheep, when the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes find the one that's lost. What does he do? He finds the sheep and he brings it back and then he rejoices with his partners. Same thing with the woman. She loses a coin. She searches and finds it and then invites people over to celebrate. Here's what's happening. What was lost is found, and they rejoice. Now celebration. 
<clears throat> now, I also want to want to throw something out to you today. We call this the parable of the prodigal son, when in fact, many times, you know, and in fact, this is one of those things, you know, the, the culture. If we went outside and we went up to the mall up the road and said, uh, "Do you know what, what the story of the prodigal son?" Uh, a lot of people would be able to tell you what that is, and and so we think we understand what prodigal means. We, we, we think that in some way, well, it's, it's rebellion, it's, it's, you know, rebelliousness against a father, it's, it's those kind of things, but that's not what prodigal means. Prodigal actually means lavish. It means abundant. It means over the top. Now, in reference to the son, that's what he did when he spent all of the inheritance. But I would put before you that Probably a better title for this parable is the parable of the prodigal father. The prodigal father. Because what he gives and what he does is so over the top. The mercy that he gives this son is over the top. The gifts that he gives his son are abundant, above what anyone else would do or think. Parable of the prodigal father. What an amazing, amazing father this was. But here's what we know. A parable always is an earthly story about a heavenly principle. And we see through this that who are the players? Well, what we see in the son is the lost sinner. He was lost. He's dead. Separated. And now he's found. And the father, who is it? Who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who covers our shames and gives us a cloak of his righteousness for our shame and our guilt. He's the one who gives us full sonship. He's the one that gives us authority. He's the one that takes care of our needs. He is the one. You know what it says in the Bible? That there is rejoicing and celebration in heaven over one lost sinner who comes to Christ. The celebration. <laughs> and I love the words. The words that the Father says on this last part. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Here's the question. Are you a prodigal? Are you one that's running away? Now, I don't know. We're here on a day when it's 100 degrees out here, sweating. Maybe you're not running away from God. But is there someone in your life who is? Man, what a beautiful thing to be able to show them this parable. To share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he has provided a way... He has provided a way 
to return, a way of escape, and that is through the cross and through him alone. But then most of all, what an opportunity that we can come together on this field today and celebrate that if we were once that one who was lost and is found now, that we can rejoice once again of the glorious, lavish, abundant, over-the-top love, mercy, and grace of our Savior. What an amazing, amazing thing. What an amazing opportunity. Let's pray.